Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now looking at the book of Matthew. I am on the third audio of that covers Matthew chapter 5. We're now going to take up the so-called, the three of the so-called six antitheses of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Starting with verse 27, we'll go through verse 37. Now, the background of this is very important to understand. We are looking at two basic theological positions on how to interpret these difficult verses. We have the covenant theology position, which says that Jesus is making an antithesis between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees are said to be perverting the law of Moses, and Jesus is correcting the Pharisees. Why do the covenant theologians say that? Is because they are bound and determined to show that nothing really has changed between the old Mosaic covenant and the new covenant of Jesus. They say that those two covenants are under the one overarching so-called covenant of grace, which is a man-made covenant. Covenant theologians have made up that term. It's not a biblical name. And since they're under the same covenant, there can't be much change. Now, there's a change in administration. They will con- they will admit to, but they won't, change, they won't admit to a change of covenants. The New Covenant theology position, on the other hand, says, no, Jesus is taking the law of Moses and he's abrogating it. Now, they don't deny that every now and then that Jesus is complaining about the Pharisees, too. But he also, at some point during these six antitheses, he actually repeals some of the law of Moses. Like, for example, when he said that, I forgot the verse where Jesus said, thus Jesus declared all things clean. That was before the new covenant was in effect. That was before Jesus started the new covenant. And he said, hey, some laws, some things are clean, despite what the law says. So he had the right to abrogate the law of Moses. So that's the new covenant position. All right, so let's get on with this. Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the first problem is, is who was it that was saying this? You shall not commit adultery. Is it Moses or is it the Pharisees? Well, let's start with a covenant theology position first. Of course, they say that this is the the people that are this through their traditions, the ancient doctors of the Jews, the Pharisees. They were the ones. The rabbis were saying you shall not commit adultery. John Gill immediately points out a problem with that. Well, it says straight there in the Old Testament Mosaic law, you shall not commit adultery word for word. So it doesn't sound like on the surface that Jesus is trying to complain about what the Pharisees are saying. And so covenant theology right from the get-go here has got a problem. Well, here's how they answer the problem. They say, What Jesus was referring to is the Pharisees taking that law and referring it to only narrowly, applying it narrowly to only one narrow sin. In other words, the physical act of adultery, the Pharisees said, yeah, well, that's not good. We won't allow that. But we do allow fornication, unchaste thoughts, words, unchaste words, unchaste actions, all kinds of other things that don't rise to the level of physical legal adultery. And another version of this is that the Pharisees were regulating external acts, but they ignored the internal acts of thought, because Jesus is saying, but I say to you, if you have a thought in your heart, you don't lust after a woman. Well, that actually sounds pretty good. However, the New Covenant 
theologians respond by that say, and by saying, look, actually there are all kinds of laws that the Pharisees had that did forbid acts that transcended simple, simple adultery. In other words, you can't say that the Pharisees were just saying, don't commit the physical act of adultery, don't commit this physical act of adultery. But Jesus says, no, I say you don't even lust. Here's, for example, here is one of the Pharisees' rules. This is quoted by John Gill, who was a rabbinic expert. He says this, this is the Pharisee speaking, It is not lawful to look upon a beautiful woman, though unmarried, nor upon another man's wife, though deformed, nor upon a woman's colored garments. They, the Pharisees, forbid looking on a woman's little finger, and say that he that tells money to a woman gives money to a woman out of his hand into hers, that he may look upon her, though he is possessed of the law and good works, even as Moses, he shall not escape the damnation of hell, because he looked at his little, because he looked at her hand. They affirm, the rabbis affirm, that he that looks upon a woman's heel, his children shall not be virtuous, and that a man may not go after a woman in the way, no, not after his wife. Should he meet her on a bridge, he must take her to the side of him, and whoever goes through a river after a woman shall have no part in the world to come. Nay, they forbid a man looking on the beauty of his own wife, the rabbis do. Can't even look at your own wife. Well, I guess I'm going to hell. According to the rabbis, I'd be going to hell. Now, these things were said by them chiefly to cover themselves, and because they would be thought to be very chaste when they were, as Christ calls them, an adulterous generation in a literal sense. In other words, the Pharisees were making it really, really external. All you got to do is not look at a woman's heel and you'd be justified. Don't look at her colored clothes and you'd be justified. Okay, well... So we can't say that the Pharisees were just complaining about adultery and ignoring other acts. They were obviously not ignoring other acts. So the covenant theology position is not going to win there. But if, you, if they could say, covenant theologians say, well, the Pharisees only condemned external acts. They didn't condemn internal acts, and Jesus condemned internal acts. Therefore, Jesus is contradicting the Pharisees, and he's not contradicting Moses. Not necessarily, anyway. Well, let's look at the New Covenant theology positions. First of all, they say it's not true that the Pharisees were allowing lust, and thus not true that Jesus condemned Pharisees' perversion of Moses. And they would quote things such as that quote from Gill that I just gave. The Pharisees were jumping all over lust. They were jumping. You couldn't even look at a woman's hand, her heel, or her colored clothes. So, yeah, they were jumping off at lust. So um, how has Jesus contradicted the Pharisees? Now, of course, the covenant theologians could say, well, they were condemning, the Pharisees were condemning external acts of lust, not internal acts. Okay, maybe so. I don't think so, but that's, it's a possibility. But anyway, the New Covenant theology people are saying Jesus, the Pharisees were condemning lust. Moses, the law of Moses did not condemn lust. And so when Jesus complained about lust, he was changing the law of Moses, making it a higher law, making it stricter. He was not changing the Pharisees because the Pharisees were already condemning lust. So, and again, on all these positions, when the reformers say the Pharisees were doing something, then what they're basically doing is saying, this sounds like something the Pharisees were doing. We don't have the evidence that they were doing it, but this sounds like something they would be doing. Now, I'm not a rabbinic expert, and I know that in one of these antitheses, there is evidence that the Pharisees were doing some bad stuff that Jesus condemned. That's the false oaths, and also maybe on uh, easy divorce. So there is some evidence in the scripture itself. But in many of these things, there is, in many of these antitheses, there's no evidence that the Pharisees were 
committing these perversions that the that Jesus is supposed to be contradicting contradicting so it sounds like Jesus is really abrogating Moses not contradicting the Pharisees and besides in this particular antithesis Jesus quoted Moses word for word word for word thou shalt not commit adultery it sure sounds like he's changing the mosaic law because the mosaic law didn't condemn lust it just condemned the external act because Moses was a lawgiver for a for a kingdom that had courts, unregenerate people, a, a civil kingdom, if you will, and you can't bring somebody to court for lust. Think about it in today's society. Can you imagine in your local district court somebody bringing somebody to court on trial, put him on trial for lust? You can't do that. It's, it's impossible. So Jesus is changing, according to New Covenant theology, he's changing the the Old Covenant law, which was based upon a civil jurisdiction from an external act of adultery to an internal act of your heart when you're in the New Covenant, when you're in the New Covenant church. Now let's go over some miscellaneous issues on this verse uh, that apply to both positions. First of all, what does it mean to lust? We just assume we know what that means. You're looking after a woman and so you desire. But actually, it's not quite as simple as that. Adam Clark says that lust is a desire to commit actual adultery with the woman. You remember the old Martin Luther saying, he said that that if the birds fly over your head, it's one thing. That's going to happen. You're always going to be tempted by women. Uh, but if you let the birds come nest in your head, that's when you start sinning. Well, I, you know, I've never have figured out a way you actually draw the line. Uh, if you look at, a, let's say, a pretty woman walks by and you look at her, you don't think about sex. You just think she's pretty. Uh, and you and you notice her feminine form, her curves and all, but you don't actually think about having sex with her. Is that a sin? Well, if uh, if you you could make Adam Clark makes the argument that no, that's not a sin really because you're not actually desiring to take her to bed. You're just looking at her and admiring the way she looks, admiring the pulchritude that God has made, if you will, admiring God's handiwork. Well, I'll leave that up to you to decide. I'm not sure. I just bring that up because it is an interesting question. There's another interesting question here. Jesus says, don't commit, a, look after a woman. What does he say? He says, don't look after a woman for with lust for her has committed adultery with her in her heart, which makes it sound like it's a married woman you're looking after. You're thinking about taking a married woman to bed. So the question is, does Jesus restrict this violation to looking at women and married women only? What about an unmarried woman? Can't you look at an unmarried woman? You can't commit adultery with an unmarried woman, but you could commit fornication, I guess. Well, Jameson Fawcett Brown says, no, nah, any kind of impurity, whether the woman is married or unmarried, you're not allowed to look at it. And I think that's an uh, answer to that question. All right, let's look to Matthew 5, 29 and through 30. We're still talking about lust here. Jesus says this, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, of course, what he's talking about is is lusting. He's saying, look, if your eye makes you to lust, and of course your hand would be committing adultery, your eye means looking at somebody with the idea you want to commit adultery with her, tear it off. Don't do it. That's basically all he's teaching. Now, there is a tendency, and I've had this tendency for years, to take this thing Exactly, literally, what did Jesus mean? Take your hand off. That seems kind of extreme to me. This was Hebrew hyperbole. It was an exaggeration. It was not meant to be taken literally here. My NIV study Bible says that Jesus is not teaching mutilation here. 
They say, the, Bible, the NIV study Bible says, even a blind man can lust. So throwing an eye, throwing your eye, tearing your eye out is not going to stop you from lusting. I, I have a question about that. You know, the lust of the eyes, the Bible says, and most people know that men lust because of what they see, not because of what they think. But that's why women, it's hard to lust after a woman. She's covered up from neck to foot. I remember a guy came into my church one time. And his wife was covered up, I mean, from her eyeballs down to her pinky. I never saw so many clothes on a woman in my life. And he said the reason was to keep people from lusting after her. He was a nut job. When you're in a house church, you're going to get these nut jobs. And and I remember thinking to myself, and I didn't say it, but I'm thinking to myself, Brother, they ain't nobody going to look at your wife looking at, like, like, at her like that and lust after her. You need to quit worrying. I, well, I guess he accomplished his purpose, keep people from lusting after covering her up. So that's why I, I don't think that that's really true. That, uh, that I think that, it's, that Jesus is focusing on the eyes is what makes a man lust. So if your eyes make you lust, be blind and don't lust. But he's not saying tear you right out. Now, this, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because I know somebody that took that verse literally. His name was Don. I, I was in my early 20s. It was decades ago. And if he's still living, he's still blind because I guess he had lusted after a woman or something. He says, well, I need to do what Jesus says. And he literally ripped his eyes out, not only his right eye, but his left eye too, ripped his eyes out of his sockets and blinded himself. And he was going to church blind every Sunday. So, no, it was not meant to be taken literally. And by the way, as a preview, turn the other cheek was not meant to be taken literally either. I'm going to show you that when we get there. Let's go to Matthew 5:31. With that, we just finished the second antithesis about lusting after a woman, committing adultery versus uh, lusting. Now we're going to look at the third antithesis, which is uh, comparing divorce versus, it's going to be comparing easy divorce versus hard divorce. Or let's read Matthew 5:31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, before we get into the two positions, covenant theology versus new covenant theology, we have got to do some background work on this. This is a quote. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. This is Moses legislating. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So Moses requires a divorce certificate when a man, Old Testament man, put away his wife. And the grounds for the divorce is indecency. And the problem is, is that word indecency in the Hebrew is totally ambiguous. Nobody knows exactly what it means. What is the indecency? Well, that became a controversy in the time of Christ between two schools of the Pharisees. You got the Hillel school and the Shammai school. The Hillel school is the liberal school. And they said divorce was okay for any frivolous reason. So in other words, if a man found an indecency in his wife, and the indecency could be because he dressed his food wrong, or because he saw a prettier woman than his wife, oh, now his wife finds no favor because I found somebody prettier than you. Josephus, in his life, his autobiography, he wrote this apparently without a sense of shame. About this time I put away my wife, who had borne me three children, not being pleased with her manners. So... This Hillel school says, it doesn't matter. She cooks the food wrong. She burps in public. 
She talks too much. She gossips too much. Any stupid reason, she burnt the toast. Kick her out of the house, but you got to give her a divorce. Certificate to protect her. The Shammai school, the uh, more conservative pharisaical school, said no, divorce is only allowed in cases of adultery. I'm going to show you later the Shammai people were right. Jameson Fawcett, well, actually, they're right. They were, well, they were, they were wrong as far as what Moses meant, but they're right as far as what Jesus meant because the Shammai people says divorce is only in cases of adultery, which is what Jesus taught. Uh, or sexual infidelity, sexual immorality. That's why serious reasons, the only reasons you, uh, that you can find an indecency in your wife and get a divorce under the Old Testament law. Now, the reason we're going to see that Moses had to have been given a divorce only for frivolous reasons because Jesus said in Matthew 19 that Moses permitted the divorce because of their hardness of heart. And that means that it only took, it would take a hard-hearted man to kick his wife out because she burnt the toast or because she burped too much. But the Jews were so hard-hearted and so unfaithful to their wives and, and so nasty that Moses had to allow divorce. Jesus said because of the hardest of their hearts, Moses allowed divorce. But now, if you take Moses as meaning that Moses allowed uh, divorce for indecency and that indecency was adultery or sexual immorality, why would that show hardness of heart? Because if a man kicked his wife out for adultery, that's exactly what Jesus said a man could do. Nothing wrong with that. It's not showing a hard heart. That's perfectly reasonable. So Moses was allowing divorce for uh, frivolous, stupid reasons. But Moses w was allowing that. But he, w but then once the person, uh, the man divorced the wife, he had to give her a certificate of divorce so that she would be free to remarry and she her sta legal status would be clear so she wouldn't be considered a fallen woman. All right, now, the covenant theology, the theology position on this is that Jesus was speaking against the Hillel Pharisees because they were taking an easy, hard-hearted approach to divorce, divorce her for frying, the, for burning the toast, no matter. And Jesus says, nah, she's got to do something really serious before you kick her out of the house. She's got to commit sexual immorality. Therefore, Jesus did not abrogate the law of Moses. He was abrogating the law of the Pharisees. Well, my response to that from the New Covenant theology position, maybe he was speaking against the Hillel Pharisees, but was he not also speaking against Moses, since Moses was obviously allowing easy divorces? And Jesus said, no, 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 no more, only for adultery. No more easy divorces, only for serious cases of sexual sin. So, you know, even granting the Covenant theology position that Jesus is speaking against the Hillel Pharisees, why is he not also speaking against what, the way Moses was doing it and changing it and coming up with a higher law for Christians? So there's the New Covenant theology position. Jesus was abrogating Moses, replacing Moses with his higher law. And to, to reinforce what I just said, how do we know that Moses was allowing divorce for easy reasons? Because in Matthew 19, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Well, if Moses was, if the indecency that Moses required for divorce was sexual immorality, that would not be because of the hardness of your heart that somebody's divorcing somebody. It would be perfectly understandable and reasonable. In fact, that was Jesus's standard. Jesus wasn't, didn't talk anything about allowing divorce for immorality because of the hardness of the heart. He's, he's allowing divorce for sexual immorality because the marriage sexual union was broken. All right, so let's go to Matthew 5.32. We're still talking about divorce here. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or sexual immorality, porneia, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what does that mean? Assuming, again, that Moses, that Jesus is referring to people who are divorcing their wives for easy reasons, divorcing for the wife except for the reason of unchastity, that's the easy divorce for burning the toast, burping too much, that makes her commit adultery because when she leaves, she's not really a, a divorced. Burning the toast is not a grounds for adultery. So when she leaves and marries somebody else, she commits adultery when she, when she enters into that second marriage. Likewise, the man who gives the divorce, he's not really divorced. He's still married to the wife who burned his toast. And when he marries uh, uh, somebody else, he also commits adultery. Jesus doesn't mention that. He's mentioning, uh, well, he doesn't mention the man who sent the woman away. But he also, he mentions a, a third man who marries a woman who's been put away this way. He commits adultery because if because he's shacking up with a, a married woman. She might be divorced because of that certificate, but in the eyes of God, she didn't commit adultery, so she's still married, and you have sex with her, you're committing adultery with her. All right, so let's go to Matthew 5.33. Now we're going to the fourth antithesis out of the six antitheses. Matthew 5.33, Jesus says again, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, the question again, as always, is who who were the ancients that were Jesus was referring to? Who were the ancients that told the Jews they should they should do this? And then Jesus contradicts those ancients. Was it Moses or was it the Pharisees? Well, before we get into that, let's look at the scriptures that Jesus is quoting from. There's lots of scriptures in the Old Testament that that inveigh against false vows. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sent in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Deuteronomy 23, verse 23, You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God, which you have promised. Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now these first one, two, three, four examples I gave you is just straight out. You're not supposed to take false vows, so there's no question about that. And it's interesting, Exodus 27, 20, verse 7, that's the, one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, when I read that verse, when most people read that verse, they say, oh, we're not supposed to cuss with God's name. By the way, how many times you hear Christians say, oh, my God, that's taking God's name in vain. And Christians do it today with no sense of shame, no sense of fear. It's disgusting. But this is really not what Jesus is mainly talking about. Or excuse me, what Moses is talking about in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments is talking about swearing by God and not performing the vow. So, and we never take it that way. I've just been listening to a bunch of reform podcasts, and in several places that point was emphasized. Uh, I think, but Gerhardus Voss in his reform in his uh, theological writings made that point several times. That it's really talking about not keeping an oath. So the scripture is over and over and over again. You're supposed to not make false vows. You're supposed to keep your vows. Adam Clark says the morality of Jews of the Jews in Jesus's time on this point was quote unquote truly execrable. It's awful. They said a man might swear with his lips and annul it at the same moment. Clark gives a more modern example. 
A witness in court is supposed to kiss the Bible and make an oath to tell the truth. Instead, he kisses the thumb of the bailiff instead of the Bible, and so, hey, I can, I can lie now because I didn't kiss the Bible. Well, the covenant theology position on this, and I agree with it on this particular uh, antithesis, Jesus was inveighing against the tricky false vows of the Pharisees. Now, there's lots of scriptural and extra-biblical evidence that the Pharisees were doing this. They were making these phony false vows, and therefore it sounds like Jesus is complaining about the Pharisees. The covenant theology people also point out, in addition to that, that Moses' law is completely unchanged by Jesus. Moses condemned false vows, and Jesus is condemning false vows. Jesus doesn't condemn good vows, thus abrogating Moses. Now, some Anabaptist types might say, no, nah, Jesus said don't take a vow at all, but I, I'm going to show you. I'm going to submit to you that he was saying don't take a false vow at all, not take a, a true vow. The Anabaptist position is really hard to hold up because, I mean, Jesus himself took a vow before the high priest when he was about to be crucified, and when Paul got caught by the Romans, he made a vow. Well, excuse me, when he was in Sincrea near Corinth, he took a vow, a Nazarite vow not to cut his hair. He took a vow. That's an oath. So uh, it's hard to say that Jesus was saying don't ever take a vow at all. So... That means Moses says don't take false, false vows. Jesus says don't take false vows. Okay to take good ones, but don't take false vows. And there's no change in the Mosaic position. And I think that's true. I think that the covenant theology theologians there are absolutely right. But now the new covenant theologians can go, come back and make a point here. Yeah, we agree with you on this antithesis, but not on the other ones. Because on the other ones, we can show that, the, that Moses either definitely was changed or most probably was changed. The burden of proof here is on the covenant theologians because they've got to show that not one and not in one place was the law of Moses changed by Jesus. And all the new covenant people have to show is that one, only one change, and we've changed the law, of Mo and Jesus has changed the law of Moses, and therefore he abrogated it. In my opinion, it is impossible for the covenant theologians to defend all six of those antitheses and say that they were all, that Jesus was in all of them referring to perversions of the Pharisees. All right, let's go to Matthew 5, verse 34. Jesus is still talking about oaths. He says, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Now, again, the, the Anabaptist and people who think that way say Jesus is saying, no oath at all, not even a good one. That can't be true. That can't be true. It's okay to take an oath on a formal legal occasion, for example. Uh, the, uh, there are many places in scriptures where oaths are taken without condemnation. Even though Moses says don't take a false oath, true oaths were taken all the time. Numbers verse thir chapter 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. The prohibition there was not against taking the oath, but was against violating the oath and not fulfilling it. He shall do all. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Psalm 15, verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's a good man swearing. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. There's no prohibition against taking the vow. It's just you're supposed to complete the vow, fulfill it. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and so forth. Okay? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So here you have God swearing himself. 
For men, in verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. There's no condemnation of people swearing here. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So we've got God himself is swearing, and, and men swearing, and God not condemning the men who swear. And the old covenant uh, vows and oaths were taken, no problem. And Moses, so Moses was not condemning good oaths in the Old Testament. He was condemning false oaths. Now let's go to the New Testament. And again, we're going to make the, the argument that Jesus is not condemning good oaths. Even though he said, make no oath at all, the context, I think, says that he's saying, don't make a false oath. Now, if Jesus said, don't make an oath at all, then he violated his own commandment. When he was brought before the high priest, right before his crucifixion, Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 through 64. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. That's N-E-S-B. I adjure you. That means I ask you under oath. That was a legal term. I ask you under oath, under penalty of perjury. I adjure you. I ask you to swear by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. That's literal. It means yes. Yes. Nevertheless, I tell you. In other words, he, he answered that request to bind himself with an oath by saying yes so jesus took an oath so and then how about paul in acts 18 verse 18 paul having remained many days longer took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for syria and with him were priscilla and aquila this is when he was leaving corinth at the end of his during his third journey Sincrea was the port city of corinth in Sincrea he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow so Paul himself swore to do something. He took a vow. Jesus is saying, don't take a rash oath about trivial matters or a false oath, one of these tricky oaths. Now, Jesus says in verse 34, I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Well, what does he mean here? He's referring to the Pharisaical practice of swearing by heaven instead of by God. Because the Pharisee thought, well, you know, if I swear, I'm scared to swear by God. If I swear by God to repay that loan, by golly, I have to do it. God might strike me dead. But if I swear by heaven, that's not swearing by God, and so that makes me safe. I don't have to keep my vow. Matthew, Jesus refers to this again in Matthew verse 23, Matthew chapter 23, verse 22. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So the Pharisees were not only swearing by heaven, they would swear by the throne of God, figuring that's not God, so I don't have to repay when I swear by the throne. In fact, somewhere, yeah, the Mishnah says that oaths may be taken by what can be defined according to size, weight, or number. So the Pharisees would say, okay, well, I, heaven... Uh, I guess I can, I guess, well, you can't really say size, weight, or number of heaven, but the throne, you can weigh it, you can, it has a size, so I can swear by that, and it won't be binding. And that was written in the Mishnah. So Jesus is contradicting all that, and contradicting the traditions of the Pharisees, and saying, no, 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 I don't care what you swear by, you're swearing by God, you're swearing by the throne of God, you're swearing by him who sits on the throne. So don't quit do, using all these tricky, devious oaths. The Jews would swear by Jerusalem. I swear by Jerusalem, I'll pay you back. That, again, is one of those things that you can measure, take the size of. So it's not a binding oath, according to the Pharisees. I swear by earth, I'm going to pay you back. Well, of course, Jesus said the earth is God's footstool. In the next verse here, I think we'll get to that. So you're basically swearing by God when you swear by the earth. So they were swearing by all these stupid things. I think in Matthew 23, it was also, I swear by the altar. I swear by the gold on the altar. But they didn't swear by the sacrifices on the altars, therefore 
What was it? So therefore the oath is not valid. Or, or I swear by the altar, but I didn't swear by the gold on the altar. I think it's the way it went. They were making silly distinctions to avoid their oaths. Uh, going on with chapter, uh, verse 35 of chapter 5, Jesus says, don't swear by, if, let, me, let me get the context here. Jesus says, uh, I say to you in verse 34, for I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, verse 35, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Don't swear by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet. It's the same thing as swearing by God. You're swearing by his footstool, you're swearing by God, pay your vow. Or don't swear by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. In other words, you're swearing by Jerusalem, you're swearing by the God who rules over Jerusalem, the great king. So you're swearing by God, so you need to pay your vows. The city of the great king is the great king is probably God, not Jesus here, because he's referring to God all the way through here through the context. Okay, let's go to verse 36, Matthew 5. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now here, and this is my opinion here, Jesus is saying, if you're going to swear, swear by something bigger and grander than a part of yourself. I guess, I don't, I'm not sure what the Pharisees were doing here. I swear by my head, I'll make pay you back. Well, if you're going to swear by your head, who are you? Who can make your hair white or black? That's God. Why don't you swear by God and, and, and make your oaths valid and true? Pay your vows. Hair is trivial. You're swearing by something trivial, which is a little bit different than what they were doing earlier. Jerusalem's not trivial, but it was really God. They were, they were trying to get around swearing by God. I guess you could say this. Are you going to swear by my head? Well, who made my head? God did. So you're still swearing by God. Jesus finishes up Matthew 5 and verse 37. He says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. Again, he's talking about don't make these false oaths. Just say yes, no, I'm going to do it. He is not saying that you can't take a formal oath to take a Levitical vow. For example, if you were a Jew that wanted to, to, to make take a vow offering, or if you had to go to court, you had to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's perfectly okay. Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about these tricky, false, devious oaths that the Pharisees were were um, advocating or allowing. All right, let's go to, actually, that's the end of verse 37, the end of the second, third, and fourth antitheses. We'll take up the fifth antitheses, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, in the next video. I hope you enjoyed this, in the next audio, I'm sorry. I hope you enjoyed this video. I hope you enjoyed this audio.